talk about deviant women from history mythology literature contemporaneity i'm alicia and i'm lauren and we are your hosts here to take you on a journey i was gonna say another fantastic journey another fantastic journey you can say that i feel like we've done this quite a number of times now this is number 21 holy crap ola really yeah is this episode 21 that's correct wow we're grown-ups now we are, we are. We get our key to the podcasting house. We can drink in America legally. <laughs> That's great. So exciting. You know what? This actually might be a really good point to just let people know that we're going to call this a season. Yes. Yeah. Season one. Season That's one. That's what this is. That's what this, this is. is. Episode 21, season one. And that means that there'll be more seasons after this (laughs) but it also means there's going to be a little season break there's going to be a little season break because at some point i need to finish my phd (laughs) don't worry it's not going to go for too long though it's going to be a couple of months for our summer which is winter for some other people in the world and then we'll be back with you in 2018 yeah strong and ready to go but don't worry we'll tell you more about that in future episodes. And this is not the final episode. This is not it. We've got a few more episodes to go. We're just winding go. down. We're just letting you know. We're just putting... We're both doing winding down actions. <laughs> yeah. We're just flagging Slowing it for you now. Down. You know, we're just setting things up so it doesn't come as a shock. <laughs> when we're suddenly gone. When we're gone later on. So savor the next three episodes. Yeah. Including so, this one. Including this one. So something else as well to bear in mind about that winding down too is that Lauren's about to head off on a trip. A very spontaneous trip. A spontaneous trip to, to California. United States of America. <laughs> How are you feeling about that? <laughs> Half of me is really excited because spontaneous trips are great and I'm half of me is like this is gonna be an amazing adventure this is the best solo woman on the road and the other half of me is like what am I doing (laughs) solo woman on the road are you a fucking idiot so I feel like a very polarized self at the moment and I'm fluctuating quite frequently between I can't sleep I'm so excited about going away and I can't sleep because I'm gonna die on the side of a road in the California mountain I don't think you need to worry about that And I think as we've demonstrated through some of the women that we've looked at in our very own podcast. That's right. You can take inspiration from some of them. And you know what? I am taking inspiration from them. You can take inspiration from Izzy. I am. Although Izzy did die in a flash flood. So try not to (laughs) die in a flash flash flood if you can. Oh, try not to die in a flash flood. California is on fire. It's on fire. It is on fire. So that likelihood is terrible and horrifying and is really creating a lot of stress and anguish and obviously also a lot of sympathy it's really devastating what's happening over there Mm. right now well maybe rather than focusing on that and uh building your anxiety about your impending trip (laughs) let's get on with today's episode yes which is going to be about edmonia lewis excellent now something about edmonia lewis if you were paying really close attention to our episode (laughs) a couple of episodes ago about charlotte cushman Cushman. you may have heard her name dropped in that episode popped up it did and i believe we even said remember that name lock it away store it away and if you're paying attention 
Well, then, congratulations, you, because today's episode's all about that very oh my woman. God, maybe we should plant seeds in our episodes that later sprout into oh, yeah. fruitful trees for into- the savvy listener. It's good. It's like a, it's an Easter egg. An Easter egg. It's a little gift to you. So Edmonia Lewis is going to be our focus for today. So tell us, Alicia, where are we in the world for those of who do not know Edmonia Lewis? She's a contemporary of Charlotte Cushman, obviously. In, indeed, she is. Their paths are going to cross. Again. Later on in today's story. But we're going to begin in the US of A. Excellent. And we're going to begin in the US of A in the year 1844. We've been in this scene before. We have. Well-trodden ground here. It is. Historically. No surprises. So we should just push right on in to the life that she lived. Yeah, well, her um, experience of this period of time is going to be a little bit different to the experience some of our other women have had. Mm. Because a very important thing to know about Edmonia Lewis is that her father was an Afro-Haitian. Mm-hmm. So she was half black American, half African American. Mm-hmm. And her mother was of African American and Native American descent. Right. So her mother was part of the Mississauga Ojibwe people. I paused because I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. We're hopefully, we're trying. We're trying. So my humblest apologies to anybody who is of the Ojibwe people, Mm. and I'm saying that incorrectly. So I'm hoping I'm doing my best. I think there's also another um, version, which is Chippewa. I think they're Mm. basically different names for the same people, and they're the anglicized versions of Mm. these names Mm. anyway so she was part african-american part native american so clearly her experience of this period of history is going to be very very different and where in the u.s is she so she was born in greenbush new york okay so she's on the north side yeah yeah and the mississauga is sort of i think it's called something else now that i wouldn't know but the sort of the native american people of this area kind of also cross into the Canadian, Mm -hmm. over the Canadian border as well. So First Nation peoples too included in that. So it kind of expands that area of New York, Toronto, Buffalo, that kind of area of America. And so her parents died when she was quite young. She was only nine when her parents passed away. So she was taken in by her aunts. And she also had a half-brother, Samuel, who was taken in by her aunts as well. And she basically grew up... With a somewhat sort of fairly idyllic sounding childhood. Really? In the 1840s? Yeah, because... As a black woman in America? <laughs> because basically what her aunties did, they wove baskets and made mm. moccasins and sold their sort of textile and crafts to yeah, okay. tourists who were coming to Niagara Falls. Oh, right. Yeah, and okay. Buffalo. So it's they... so weird to think of there being a tourist trade in Niagara Falls 150 years ago. Yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> There was a booming tourist wow. trade in Niagara Falls. Yeah, Niagara Falls is a really popular tourist destination. I mean, destination. I imagine it would be. Why wouldn't it be? It's yeah. a pretty magnificent site. Yeah, so basically... No, I haven't been there yet, but I, <laughs> I what imagine. I understand of, of it to be. On the television, it looks yeah. impressive. Yeah, so actually quite a popular tourist destination. Cool. And when she wasn't making arts and crafts with her aunts and selling their wares... She was basically hunting and fishing and running wild in Mm. the forests. So she actually, later on in life, 
said that she would have loved to have continued to live that way if it wasn't for her passion for art oh, that wow. drove her to have to move into the cities. And so did this passion for art originate I'm with the arts and crafts that she was doing with her aunties? I would assume yeah. that it does, that she begins to sort of – because she's going to be a sculptor, right? Yeah. Let's just say that now. Yeah. She's important to us because she's going to become a huge part of the sculpting scene that we will get to later on. Yeah. It's very hands-on work, weaving, handicrafts. That kind of thing. Yeah, so I guess this would have fed into her desire to create. Yes. Yeah, and her um, imaginative sort of genius perhaps mm. spawned mm. from here early on in life. She herself idolised that time in her in her life when she looked back on it. At this point in time as well, she went by her Native American name, which was Wildfire. Really? Yeah, so she didn't change her name until she got to school. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she was Wildfire for it's this. It's a way better name. Yeah. So this is what she was doing at the time. But her brother, half-brother Samuel, Samuel, who I mentioned earlier, he was making a bit of money as a barber of all oh. things. And he went to live in California. But he continued to provide money back for his sister. So that's that's a long trip back in the day. Oh, the yeah. 1800s going From to California to become to a barber. California. What a trek. A bit of a trek. When she was about 12, he basically sent money back to have her enrolled in a Baptist abolitionist school. So he wanted her to get an education and he actually continued to provide for her pretty much for the rest of her life. Okay, so, so we've got another woman here who's being looked after by a male... A sibling. Like yeah, that. so someone like Agnes Goodsir from a few weeks ago, she was able to be an artist because she had the support of her wealthy, white, you know, upper-middle-class father. This is a really different situation, though. But, I mean, it's very similar in that the patronage of a male relative allows her to become an artist. But at the same time, really... He had to struggle like, himself. Yeah, yeah. Really quite an incredible version of that typical tale. Yeah. And, I, I mean, she did eventually earn enough money to look after herself as well. Yeah. But he did continue to be there for her for her entire he life. He obviously believed in her. Yeah, definitely. So... He's an interesting character, and I think he basically just went on to be a barber for the rest of his life. Wow. And I can't imagine the barbers are earning that much money. I wouldn't have a clue. I don't know. How much would a typical barber earn? I have no idea. Now they'd earn a lot because hipsters all go to barbers. <laughs> so, you know, barbers are in fashion. So I imagine it's a good role to be in And they had some pretty intense beards in the mid-1800s. They so bloody well did. Know. They all needed pomade. Yeah. <laughs> But she didn't stay long in her Baptist abolitionist school because living up to her name, she was a bit wild. Oh, and of course she was. Yeah, she did last in that school for about three years. But at about the age of 15, her brother stepped in again and sent her to Oberlin College. This is quite extraordinary. Yes, it is. And Oberlin College was one of the first places in America to allow mm. women. Women. Firstly. And and women then, of colour? Then women what? of colour. What the fuck? In yes. 1860-something, I'm yeah. going to guess that we're in... Well, she's 15 now. Yeah, so in the early like 1860s, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, they were one of the first colleges to allow them in. And it was here at Oberlin College while she was studying that she changed her name to Edmonia Lewis, mm. Mary Edmonia was Lewis. Was that, like, an issue of respectability to change her name? I think it was an anglicising, mm. yeah. Definitely, mm. in order to fit of in. Of wanting to fit in. Mm. Not that I'm suggesting the wildfire is not respectable, but I'm talking about from an Anglo-centric, you know, let's be honest, yeah. racist perspective. Yeah. And also from a religious perspective as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, she's come up through a Baptist upbringing. Later on in life, 
it's sort of suggested that she was very Catholic. Mm-hmm. So this also could play into oh, but she was, her religious really? ideas. Even yeah, she went to Baptist she school. She went to Baptist school, but later on in life, a lot of her work was commissioned for uh, Catholic churches oh. and she did a lot of work on Catholic subjects as well. I mean, well, that makes so. sense since she's going to end up in Roma. In Roma. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. So yeah, it was here that she changed her name and that she began to study art. Mm. Of course, even though Oberlin College was open to women and open to women of colour, despite their fairly open-minded seeming policies... The seemingly open-minded Seemingly policies. open-minded policies. There were still restrictions on women regardless. So they were usually not given really any opportunity to speak in class. Like oh. questions were not directed to them and they were not invited to answer questions. Oh. And nor were they really invited to participate or speak in public meetings. Really? So it's like, okay, if you insist, you come along, but please sit in the back and know your place. Yeah, pretty much. Like seen but not heard. Yeah. Very. Fuck. So it Guys, was, so it, it might sound it might sound Picture aggressive. This really great idyllic like fuck yeah Victorian school, but no, not, not so much. Not so much. Huh? Yeah. I mean it's much more progressive than other parts oh, of the country. Oh yeah. I mean, hey, by a mile. Pro- progress happens in stages, doesn't it? It sure does. And of course, this was also around about the time of the Civil War. Yeah, too. yeah. So a lot of racial tension mm-hmm. in, across America, that's an understatement. Yes. But still is. As part of her, while she was at Oberlin, there was an incident that sort of does show up some of those prejudices that mm. still were bubbling under the surface. Yeah, yeah. Because... I think I know what this incident is. Yes, it was during the winter. Yeah. And ooh. there was... Herself and yeah, okay. During the winter, cold, dark, Oberlin winter. Yeah. Her and two other girls decided they were going to go for a sleigh ride. Excellent, good times. This makes me think of the scene in the Susan Sarandon version of Little Women. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's a lot like that, but also a lot not like that. But a lot less idyllic and yeah. white yeah okay, continue. <laughs> far less white <laughs> and she was going to go uh on a sleigh ride with two friends but before they went i mean it's cold right we've set that up edmonia decided she would serve her friends a spiced drink like a, a warm spiced glue vine i don't know what glue vine is you know spiced wine you serve at christmas time mulled wine mulled wine i don't like mulled wine yeah i tried making mulled wine once and we used cheap cask wine <laughs> and goon bag wine goon sack wine and <laughs> this is really bad i'm not surprised gross well i don't know how money made it maybe she used goon sack wine as well probably not. i don't know did goon bags exist then no this is a different tangent um <laughs> so she served her friends um a drink of spiced wine before they went out but very shortly after they fell ill. Oh no! And some, oh no! And doctors were called, and the doctors suspected they Poisoning. had been poisoned. This is not how it went in Little Women. No, very <laughs> different. But no evidence of this was found. So there was no evidence of poisoning. There was no evidence of poisoning, except that the women were sick. Except they fell very, very ill. And for a brief period of time, it looked like they were going to die. And they didn't die. They didn't. In a couple of days, they recovered. Bada okay. bing, bada boom. So maybe there's right? a really bad indigestion. Maybe. Who can say? So a rumour spread, though, of no. course. And a rumour we can all imagine, which was no doubt attached to her otherness. Oh, yeah. As a 
African American slash Native yeah. American woman. Tichaba all over all again. over again. Despite the fact that these girls survived and that there was no evidence to link her to prove that she had poisoned them, one night while walking home alone, oh, fuck off. she was no, 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 don't. accosted oh, no. by a group of assailants, an unspecified number of assailants, who oh. attacked her, beat her rather badly and left her for dead in a field mm. which is pretty i mean oh, this is tangential but it's just so fucked up this stuff is not it happens so much this still happens of course it does all the time like sorry i'm just having a moment i haven't had a lot of sleep in the last few days very emotional <laughs> taking things I'm getting angry taking things okay. very very seriously but i mean it was obviously a very serious issue she was found and she did recover but what the fuck yeah guess what happens next mm. after the attack she's charged with the poison she's she arrested been... and charged with poison so she had been let off before so they no, didn't pin yep. it on her so at all? no evidence was found and she was not charged with poisoning was she was there even like an investigation launched no it was not until after the rumor spread and she was attacked then and found beaten were they then like oh everybody decided to join a fucking mob and you know, essentially, this is a fucking lynch mob, right? Yeah. Let's go after this woman because we've decided to demonize her. Yeah. Thus, she must be guilty. I reckon there's two ways of seeing it, right? I think there's one way of seeing it where they've gone, she must be guilty, therefore we need to arrest her. But the other side of it is mob justice. In order to go appease around, in order to appease mob justice and avoid them killing her outright... We'll take it through the courts. We'll even prove her guilty or innocent that way. Right. And it's actually... So there's two way of lo- ways of looking at it. Both one, of them are pretty shitty, though. Of course they are. But on the one one side of it, it's actually this idea of... Perversely protecting Perversely her. protecting her from mob justice by instead dragging her through the courts <sighs> with no evidence. Right. So there's kind of two ways to look at it. Yeah. And she was represented at the time by the only African-American lawyer that was practicing in Oberlin, and she was found not guilty. Okay, well, that's something. So, that's good. Yeah, exactly. So in the end, she was cleared of all the charges. But I imagine her great university career is over. Well, after that, she was a total social pariah. Yeah. And she continued to be accused of all sorts of things, like stealing tools mm. from the art supplies at school. And eventually, she was actually forbidden to even register to complete her last term. So she's not even allowed to continue her study. So she what? never officially graduated. Did they have any – okay, so I've been very quick to sort of be like, oh, they're just accusing her, but is there genuine evidence to suggest that she may have done this? Well, the records don't show any evidence, mm. don't suggest that there, that there was any evidence it's that was It's just found. that two girls got sick. Yes. It's fairly circumstantial. And she had happened to serve them a drink. Yeah. But we don't know. Maybe she did poison maybe, them. I mean, maybe she maybe did. Maybe she did. We don't know that she didn't, but we, we don't also know. don't know that she did. That's right. So. And either way, you don't deserve to get dragged into exactly. a and beaten half to death. Yeah. Regardless, the result for her was social exclusion, yeah. being ostracized even more than she was already being ostracized mm. simply because of who she was. And she never officially graduated, as I mentioned before. So after this, she basically packs up and gets the fuck out of Dodge and goes to Boston. And she has with her a letter of recommendation from the Oberlin School Reverend. Oh, 
that's that's something. That's something. But even still, she struggles to find an art instructor because, as we said, she's studying art. She already knows at this stage that this is what she wants to do. Mm. So she struggles and eventually she is taken on board by a sculptor called Edward Augustus Brackett. And he eventually... Brackett? Brackett. What a fantastic name. He should not be in the sculpting business, though. He should be in, like, the... Mathematics. Oh, no. I was actually going to say he should be, like, in the cupboards and shelving industry. You know? Applying brackets yeah, to yeah, things. Yeah, definitely. yeah, definitely. I was way. thinking brackets, like, that you use in algebra. Either or. That's not what he did, however. <laughs> but he did take her on, and he specialised in marble busts. Yeah. And he had a lot of abolitionist clients. So as I mentioned before, she went to a Baptist abolitionist school. Mm. And so despite her otherness, we've used that term plenty before, despite her racial otherness, there were at this time, of course, a lot of abolitionists in America working for a white abolitionists, working yeah. for the emancipation of African-Americans, the Civil War had just happened. Mm. So there were racial tensions, but there were people who saw themselves to be on the side of people like Edmonia. Yeah. There were people who did genuinely want to help her out as well. And so when she was working with Brackett, she learned as well how to make her own tools for sculpting. And she sold her first work for $8, Ah, which I don't know what the equivalent of today would be but more than eight dollars more than eight dollars and it was a marble work of a lady's hand great hands are hard hands are fucking hard hands are notoriously hard apparently the story goes that what Brackett did when she first came on was he gave her a model he had made of a foot and gave her some clay and said go home and copy that and then if you bring it back to me and it's any good then i'll know you've got some talent and she came back with her version of it this is the apocryphal story. I don't know yeah. how true it is. And apparently he looked at it and he smashed it on the ground and he gave her another piece of clay and said, try again and <gasps> sent her off. And this is basically how he taught her to sculpt. Oh, my gosh. Smashing her attempts and, and then sending her off to wow. try again. Do it again. So I guess she would have been very good at hands and feet by this yeah, stage. Yeah. <laughs> Having had them repeatedly smashed. And... Well, look, this doesn't set them up very well because eventually their relationship ended quite badly, apparently. But the records don't show why, but it's soured. And it may well be because he kept smashing her work. Whoa! (laughs) Hey, look, some people work via positive reinforcement and others, eh, well, (laughs) I suppose the smashing version works for some people. Doesn't work for me. I don't respond to that. You have to be nice to me. You have to be like, that's the best foot I've ever seen. Just try a bit harder next time. (laughs) So it ended badly, but she went on to open her own studio after this. And she had her first solo exhibition in 1864. I don't know how old that makes her. Well, early 20s, right? It makes her 20. 20. Yeah. Because she was born in 1844. Circa 1844. So yeah, she had her first solo exhibition at the age of 20. And she was really inspired by the abolitionists of the time. And... In 1864 as well, she created a bust of Colonel Robert Shaw, and he was a Civil War hero, and he died leading the all-black 54th Massachusetts Regiment. So he was a real Civil War hero because he was a white man that put his hand up to lead Mm. an all-black regiment. Mm. And she made this bust in honour of him, and his family loved it, and his family bought it as a Mm -hmm. memento. She then made a bunch of copies of the bust. Well, and they were a prominent family, I imagine. Yes, so yeah. Lots he of influence was influence and like 
Yeah, so that would do wonders for her career, basically. Yeah. And he was a hero. Like, yeah. he was a known Civil War hero. Yeah. So it did wonders for her reputation. She made a bunch of money selling copies of the bust, and this amount of money allowed her to sail to Rome. Mm. Her brother probably also contributed some money to allow her to leave America. Roma. Roma. To Roma. And some suggestions are that rather than sort of happily leaving America to head off to Europe to study art, it's a little bit more of an exile, really. Apparently, Edmonia sort of wrote that she felt that she was practically driven out of America and driven to Rome in order to sort of obtain those sorts of opportunities and to find a place where she could actually fit in and not constantly be reminded of who she was of her colour because there's a quote that she said that the land of liberty had no room for a coloured sculptor. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, So it's not just this idea of off you go to Europe and to opportunities. It's like off you go to Europe and opportunities and get the fuck out of America that still doesn't know how to deal with you. Yeah. So she headed off and there's some suggestions that she probably travelled through London and Paris and Florence and did a little bit of sightseeing before she arrived in Rome. But regardless, in about 1866, at the age of 22-ish, she arrives into Rome. Rome. I should do no more songs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no more songs, Lauren. So this is she's here at the same time as Charlotte Cushman? So you guessed it, Lauren. You hey. guessed it. She enters hey. into the fray of the expatriate set that already are here in Rome. Was she welcomed into – because this was a predominantly – I say predominantly white, but I, I, what I probably really mean by that is this is a white community. It's fairly exclusively white. Yeah. yeah. Look. Or is her Americanness enough – For her to be accepted. Her position in Rome is really interesting because she is taken into the patronage of none other than Miss Charlotte Cushman. Aye. Does come through as a patron for Edmonia. And she also does receive some patronage from another woman called Maria Weston Chapman, who was also a dedicated worker of the anti-slavery cause. And she did receive some studio space, was given to her by another established sculptor. So she did receive some help, but there's also a suggestion that it wasn't still that simple. She didn't just mm. walk into a beautiful, loving community because yeah. those racial tensions still existed even in the American expat community yeah. that were here. And there were other artists here that we've touched on before, like Harriet Hosmer, Emma Stebbins, and Whitney, Margaret Foley. Emma Stebbins is just the best name. It's a pretty good name. Emma Stebbins. Emma Stebbins. And as we know, Emma and Charlotte were a thang. Yeah. Louise Lander was another famous artist and uh, Vinnie Reem Hoxie. They were some of the really prominent female artists that yeah. were here at the time. And most of them were sculptors. Yeah. So because Charlotte Cushman was an actress, there are a few painters, but a lot of them are... Predominantly sculptors. Yeah. 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 And despite... The sexism of the period, most of them were able to achieve international fame in Rome and London and other cities, but solely because they were working outside of their own community and sort of talking back to it. Yeah. In a way. And this also worked for Edmonia in terms of race and where Mm -hmm. she was positioned, Mm -hmm. being able to talk back to America through her work. Because I imagine that Roman culture is probably still relatively well in europe so the thing is is that in rome at the time 
she's a bit of an anomaly even for Italians to class where she fits in. Yeah. Because she's not clearly, to them, she's not clearly African. Yeah. But she's clearly not European. Yeah, yeah. So she's so problematic for them to even class that she kind of actually becomes invisible. But she also wouldn't come with so much of the cultural baggage associated with her race in America, which, I mean, is built on such an enormous history of black oppression. Whereas that... While I imagine that in Europe there's a lot of prejudice, there's not the same exact same history. They have a different kind of history of racism, but it's not the same history. Yeah, yeah. So she kind of actually kind of slips through the cracks Yeah. in this kind of melting pot of artists. Obviously, when we were talking about Agnes Goodser a few episodes ago, we were looking at the Paris artist scene, mm. which comes later Rome at this time, as we mentioned before as well in previous episodes about Charlotte Cushman, Rome at this time, this was the Paris. Mm. You know, this is what Paris is going to be in another Mm. 20, 30 years. This is the melting pot of artistic creativity is here now. It's Rome's time. It's probably very multicultural then. Yeah, yes. But at the same time, that expatriate community of American artists is very, very strong strong and tight-knit. So, I mean, things weren't perfect for her here as a woman of colour, but they were definitely made easier than they had been back in the US. So, you know, let's not kid ourselves, but it was certainly a different... Yeah, it was Mm. certainly a different environment. Mm. Back home, though, so now that she's here and establishing herself, she predominantly worked in marble. And as you can imagine, she was surrounded by a wealth of ancient Roman artifacts and Italy's classical art. And so she started making sculptures in a very neoclassical style. So she made, following the tradition of those sort of grandiose Michelangelo's and, you know, classical kind of busts and sculptures. But her subject matter was different. So she made things in that style, but a lot of her subjects were Native American subjects. Right, yeah. African-American subjects. Mm. So... Even though she was using that very European style, she was still talking back to an American audience with her themes and subjects. And so she started to really become quite famous back in America and she kind of ended up as a bit of a poster girl for abolitionists back in America and she received a lot of praise and she sold a lot of work. This is excellent, of course, but there were elements of this praise and elements of this success that troubled Edmonia herself Mm. because she often felt that in a way people were using her work and using her to sort of show their own moral superiority rather than actually admiring her for her art. Is it you say that she became a poster girl for the abolitionist campaign so oh it even I don't even want to say it but is it sort of like a here's an example of a talented, intelligent yes. black woman? Yes, that's right. Thus, we should treat them like human beings? Yes. She was used as a, look, black people can do things too, uh, pretty much. Yeah. And it's, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. so you can understand that Edmonia yeah, was problematic. Was, <laughs> Offended horrendously, yeah, you know, yeah. this was a huge problem. It's like take her seriously on her own terms. Yeah, take her seriously for her art. And I mean, this is clearly a problem that female artists have had mm. throughout history, just 
you know, just mm. taking that, just women have yeah. had this throughout history. Take me seriously for what I do. Yeah. Don't just say, oh, it's a woman who can do oh, a thing. Oh, she's special. And Edmonia had the double thing of like, not only is she a woman who can do she's things. She's a black woman. But she's a woman of colour who she's... can do things. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Of course, she was happy to take their money and she was super pleased with the fame and the praise. But she didn't kid herself. Like yeah. she, she did know that some of it did come back to her identity. Yeah, as an artist, not and it's just her art. I mean, oh god, it's really. So I've been trying to be very conscious and very aware of how you know how I function within like these kinds of systems and and identity politics, and it's so it really is so difficult to because we are at a stage today where, oh, you know, women's art is still not taken as seriously. It's come enormous strides though, enormous, enormous strides, but it's still really difficult to imagine the enormous added pressure of being a woman of color and to th- what it would be like to be in that position because she's not in a position to say no. She's not, I mean, what do you, you're not going to say no mm. for your moral superiority. No, I'm yeah. not going to sell you my work because I don't think that you're appreciating the yeah. art. I, I suspect that, that you just want to buy it so that you can talk about how open-minded that you yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But what is, what is she going to do? And it's important that she did as well because it's important for her to have this is such a complicated issue and I don't want to say it in the way that I'm saying poster child. I don't want to say that word, but it's her presence is important. Her Mm. presence on this scene is important. Mm. And she constantly has to negotiate that status as well. Like this is something that she is obviously hugely aware of. She's constantly negotiating that for herself because there were also people who suggested that she was a hoax yeah, and that she didn't do her art, yeah. right? And in order for her to address those sorts of concerns, because, of course, as a sculptor as well, this is something – women as sculptors, it's not a very ladylike profession, no, right? No, Because it involves hammering and chiseling yeah. things. Probably had to wear trousers so you yeah. could do your work. It's physical. Very physical. It's physical yeah, yeah, labour. It's not sitting there looking pretty and painting on a canvas, right? Mm. Not that I'm trying to belittle painting on a canvas, but it's a physical job. Yeah. And a lot of sculptors would just do like the modelling in the clay and then they would actually hire Italian sculptors to render that into the bigger marble version. Right. So they didn't always actually make the marble versions so the themselves. the physical work. The physical chiseling out, mm. they didn't do that. They would make They did the, the conceptualising. Yeah, they did the wax and clay yeah. models, but then they were turned into the larger work. Edmonia insisted on doing the chiseling of the marble herself. Mm-hmm. And in order sort of to prove that it was her doing the work, she opened her studio up as basically a tourist destination. Right. So people would come and watch her work and it was basically her way of saying, look, I'm doing it. I'm actually fucking doing it. So we've it. also then got this self-validation and proof, but then there's an element of spectacle too. Yeah, exactly. She was also a spectacle. Oh, my God. I mean, how do you – this is what I'm talking about with that negotiation. Yeah. Like, how does she negotiate that space? Fuck. There are what so many issues. Position. I mean, Jesus, what an incredible woman. Because she must have been aware of her place in the world. She must have been aware of her – I mean, her place in the sense of her being, like, a forerunner yeah. in this. And knowing She's how the, special she was and yeah. knowing how – out of the box she was and how hopefully 
of the future she was. Mm. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the first woman to do this. Yeah. The first African-American, Native American. That we know of. That we know of in the history records. Definitely the first one to move to Rome yeah, yeah. and become a sculptor yeah. in neoclassical style. Yeah. There's definitely nobody else in the records that did this. <laughs> So she is a first. She's an absolute 100% first. Nobody else has done what she's done before. Yeah. Yeah, so the pressure on who she is and how she goes about this is huge. And she doesn't have any forerunners who've plotted out a path that she can follow. And even all of those women around her in that expat community, they are all also forerunners but in a different way way. yeah they don't have that same necessity to be an example of their whole like a whole minority of people precisely and do you remember our friend henry james from the charlotte (laughs) yeah (laughs) everyone remembers our friend henry james (laughs) and remember some of the dumb shit he said about about charlotte cushman what's he got to say about edmonia well henry james and his dude bro friend nathaniel hawthorne oh nathaniel hawthorne (laughs) nathaniel hawthorne okay him on it yeah famous um for the scarlet letter of course they dubbed them the white memorial flock now white memorial flock like mammary no no no, okay i was like what the white breasted (laughs) no so meaning of memorial meaning of marble Okay, because I thought you meant memorial as in of breast. No, 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 no. (laughs) Memorial. Okay, memorial. Yes. So Charlotte. Memorial. So this Charlotte Cushman, Harriet Hosmer, Edmonia Lewis. This whole expat group. This is their white memorial flock. But of course, this gives them a really sort of a generic, homogenized sort of Mm. idea, and. Art historians view this as a very derogatory term. Yeah. Because it is. And also because Edmund and Lewis was exclusionary. It's so exclusionary. <laughs> Nathaniel Hawthorne also wrote a novel called The Marble Fawn. I don't know if you've heard of that no, novel I don't before. Know that one. And that is entirely based on this whole set of women. Hmm. But in his novel, there are sort of two female protagonists. And he shies away from making any suggestion of their sexuality mm-hmm. or because, of course, as we discussed with Charlotte Cushman, the majority of this expatriate community were involved in lesbian love affairs mm. as well. But mm. Nathaniel Hawthorne's not going to touch on that, yeah. is he? Torian sensibilities won't allow it. But he did write a book called The Marble Form, which was based on this entire set of women. Henry James said specifically of Edmonia as part of this group of women, he said that, one of the sisterhood was a negress whose colour, picturesquely contrasting with that of her plastic material, by which he means white marble, was the pleading agent of her fame. So he's basically attributing her success to her... To the fact that her skin colour contrasts with the marble. Yes, he's attributing her success to her blackness rather than to her talent because... Arsehole. (laughs) Like... Literally covering proved, my face with a cushion. Because that we've hurt me that to hear Henry that. James is a bit of a <laughs> This is the kind of world, this yeah. is the kind of shit this she is had the to. shit she's got to deal with every single day. Yeah, that's right. Being basically told that she's a success. She's either a success in spite of or because of her colour. She's damned if she do, damned if but she do. But she can't just be a fucking artist. Yeah, that's right. Can't be an artist on her own terms. All this other baggage has to come along with it. So, as I say, this was kind of the reason why she set up her studio as a bit of a tourist destination, I guess in the hopes that she could sort of prove that she was doing this herself. Mm. She was a talent, was a force to be reckoned with. And she received 
so many visitors from America who commissioned her for work. Yeah. There's a bit of a famous case of a Mr. and Mrs. Thomas who visited her in Rome and commissioned her to make a monument for Mrs. Thomas's mother in mm-hmm. the cemetery to be placed on her grave in the cemetery. And Edmonia drew up a design of the Virgin of the Cross and she did it up and she sent it off. When it um, arrived in America, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas said that they hated it <gasps> and they refused to pay. Ooh. Uh-oh. This is an interesting case because what ends up happening is Edmonia sues them, right? Mm-hmm. She goes back to America for this court case and she sort of receives these testaments from these Italian sculptors who write these testaments about the artistic merit of the work. Okay. Yeah. To prove that it doesn't matter what Mr. and Mrs. Thomas like. This is good work. This is good work and you need to Lewis pay for it. knows her shit. You should... Yeah. You should trust that you're yeah. in the hands of someone who is an artist. Exactly. Whether or not you like it, the technique, the style, mm. the execution is the execution of an artist. Yeah. And therefore you need to pay her for this mm. regardless of what you think of it. So it's interesting that mm. that these renowned, respected um, – She had the, like, support. They came her. to her support yep. and yep. they came to her support as an, an artist. artist. Yeah. And, and if you look at her work, she is an artist. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter – who or where she was from, Mm. she knew what she was doing. And she actually did win her case Mm. and she didn't win the full amount that she'd sued for, but eventually she won um, 407 US dollars. That seems like it would be a lot. Which I think would have been a lot at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that was of the original 635 US dollars for which she sued. Demonstrates that within her own community, at least, she was taken seriously and respected. And she was. She was respected and as look, an artist. And I'm sure, look, I'm sure that there were so many people who genuinely really did admire her work on its own terms. You know, I'm sure that she wasn't a, the poster child for everybody, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So aside from the Mr. and Mrs. Thomas incident, <laughs> she did receive a lot of commissions for altarpieces and other works for sort of Roman Catholic patrons as well. Mm. So, so this is, yeah, this is where the Catholicism stuff comes in because she's working in Rome and there's a lot of Roman. Yeah. And she did become stuff. fluent in Italian, obviously. She was Good there for her. like, she was there for like 20 years. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So, so you would. You're going to become yeah. fluent in Italian. To. Probably more than that, actually, more than 20 years. Quite a few American patrons who visited her actually did comment on the fact that her Italian had become so fluent that her English had started to suffer for Oh, wow. <laughs> and that they sometimes struggled to communicate with her because her Italian was now so good. So, yes, she did make a lot of commissions that were sent back to um, churches in the U.S., and she continued to sculpt in marble. And as I said, a lot of her themes were related around sort of issues of identity. Yeah. Know? So she's yeah, yeah, using yeah. that very, very neoclassical style. But towards the end of this period, the popularity for marble work started to sort of wane with people like Rodin who, who was coming through mm-hmm. and romanticism was becoming much more popular and bronze was becoming the favoured material over marble. So, of mm. course, you can think of someone like Rodin and all of his very mm. famous bronze statues. And this was also the period of time where Paris started to overtake Rome yep. as the centre of... Capital. As the cultural capital, the centre of the art world. So... At this stage, interest in her starts to wane. Mm. And this is where she sort of starts to come a little bit eclipsed by sort of history, I suppose. And to be perfectly honest, the final sort of years of her life pretty much get lost 
to history. Yeah. So the only things that we know is that she, she did travel around in and out of Italy, back and forth to America, but she left Rome for good sometime in the 1890s and then she kind of disappears mm. for about 10 years and she doesn't come back up on the radar until about sort of 1901, mm. by which time she's moved to London. But what happens in that sort of intervening period of time is a little bit of a, a mystery. For a while it was speculated that she'd spent her last years in Rome and that she'd actually died in Rome. And, and never wa- went to London. Yeah, and it, but it wasn't until actually recently that documents were found that showed oh. that she had actually died in London and suggested that she died in London in 1907 okay. in the Hammersmith Borough Infirmary. Apparently her death certificate showed that it was due to chronic Bright's disease, which is what like does a, that mean? It's like a kidney disease. Oh, and um, she's buried in a Roman Catholic cemetery in London. For a while, there was speculation that she died in California. California? Yeah, and that she was actually buried in an unmarked grave in San Francisco. <laughs> and also there was a suggestion that she died in Rome. So right. for a really long time, no she knew. just went off the radar wow. and nobody knew what had happened to her. But eventually, as I said, her real grave was located in London. Isn't it amazing that you can just lose track of people like that? Yeah. Do you know what? They found her grave. It was in disrepair. And they started like, I don't know who they is. Someone started like a Kickstarter GoFundMe to fix her grave up. For real? Yes, for real. a real Kickstarter? Like a real GoFundMe thing. Oh, cool. That fixed up her grave. Aw. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's nice. That's good. I hope that she's got a nice sculpture. Is it a sculpture? On her grave? Uh, no. It feels like it should be. I did see a picture of it. It's a little bit nothing. I mean, I feel like that she deserves a, s- a sculpture. I mean, she made sculptures mm. for so many other people's graves. Well, then in which case she'd be very picky of whatever sculpture went on her grave. Oh, yeah, you that's would, true. You would probably that's imagine. True. So, you know, nobody would want to do that. You'd be like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to be responsible for that. But <laughs> interestingly enough, I mean, her grave is not the only thing about her that sort of disappeared into obscurity. She's... Very famous, and if you look this up, this is one of the first things you'll find for Edmonia Lewis sculptures. She's very famous for her sculpture, The Death of Cleopatra. Mm. She made that in about 1876 for the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, and it was a fairly monumental 3,000-ish pounds statue. That is bug. How many kilos would that be, Lauren? You know what? There's about 2.2 pounds per kilo, uh I reckon. Yeah. So, do the maths. On my reckoning, that'd be 1,360.777 kilograms. Good maths, yeah, Lauren. Just that off the top of my off head. Off the top of your head. So, it's a rather large statue. Rather large. Rather large. And look, that statue received quite a lot of attention and press because it was very different in the style that it was made because it wasn't really romanticizing death in the way that a lot of classical statues romanticize yeah. death. It kind of captures her with her head thrown back, but not in a sexy, beautiful way. Yeah, which is so often the way that yeah. particularly women are portrayed in those moments of death. Yeah, it's much more. It's a much more sort of realistic rendering yeah. of a dying body, yeah. kind of. I mean, like I'm saying that like it's really. It's no, but for the period, for the period, that's quite unusual. It was pretty different and pretty risque. Mm. It didn't end up selling at the show. But it did make Everyone was probably like, oh. Yeah, not sure about that. Yeah. I mean, Um, we Victorians really, really, really like death. But we're like, 
Pretty Death. Yes, they like Pretty Death, but it did still re- receive a lot of praise because it was still a very impressive work. Yeah. Regardless. But yes, it didn't sell. Eventually, so it kind of went into storage. Eventually, it was bought by this guy called Blind John Condon. Okay. Blind great, John Condon. Great name. This is, <laughs> this is how the story goes. And he bought it to mark the grave of a racehorse called Cleopatra. Oh, no. So bought really? this fancy, fancy statue and put it on the grave of a racehorse. That is sub- such a thing that some rich old white dude with too much money would do. <laughs> was he really blind? I don't know. Because if he was... Maybe it just refers to how drunk he used to get. Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the work itself sort of then ended up getting shifted around into storage. It ended up at the back of like a racetrack. Eventually it was graffitied and half destroyed. And it wasn't until the 1990s. No way. The 19 freaking 90s that it was finally recovered. What? by an uh, art historian and a, a biographer. And when who they found the, it, were they just like... They were like, what oh my the God! fuck? Oh, yes. my God! Because they had heard about it and they knew yeah. it existed but were struggling to actually hunt it down and find where it was. Oh, and sort Imagine of, that moment. Yes, I know. Oh, That moment of being like, oh, my God, oh my this God, is it. This is, the, this is the thing. You'd be weeping. And it you'd had be to be... with re- happiness. You would be weeping with happiness. And it had to be repaired and restored to its former glory because it had spent so long out in the elements. Yeah. It had started to sort of disintegrate. I hope that that Cleopatra so. was a fast horse. I hope she was worthy of that statue. Yeah. Yeah. And it ended up... In the Smithsonian collection. Excellent. So a lot of her work has been recovered and is on display and you can find it. As I said before, she did focus on a lot of themes that were kind of talking back to America yeah. about the American situation at the time. And the American situation of all time. <laughs> of all time. <laughs> and a lot of her work depicted sort of stories of oppressed people. Mm. So some of her other work that you'll find when you look her up, because I'm assuming everyone's going to go away and look up her Please work do. now, is the Hagar myth, which was the Egyptian slave that gave birth to Abraham's <gasps> first son. Yes. Very similar to the Rachel and Lee Lee. story, like The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Yeah. So another one of those biblical stories of a woman who's given away to give birth to somebody else's child because the wife is barren. Can't have them. And then she's cast out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So she used this theme, of course, obviously, because she was talking about otherness and yeah. being exiled yeah. as an other. Yeah. She also did basically a reworking of Michelangelo's Moses and, of course, Moses who led the Israelites from oppression. Mm -hmm. Another one of her famous works is called Forever Free and that's a sculpture depicting an African-American man with his sort of fist raised in the Mm. air, freed from chains and also a woman kneeling by his side, sort of emerging from the bonds of slavery. Yeah. The woman in that particular sculpture is often referred to because she's very different. And, again, this plays into the way that Edmonia worked race into her work Mm -hmm. because that depiction, the woman is fully clothed. She's not sexualized. Yeah, sure. Yep. And that's a really different way of approaching I guess the idea of that primitive, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm doing, I'm totally You're doing, doing air the, quotes, air quotes. I, there are such air quotes around yes. that. And it was a very different way to do it, to not sexualize her, yeah. to make her an actual 
person on yeah, her own Yeah, a human terms. being. Instead of having her, um, you know, breasts exposed, mm. all of that sort of stuff. And then another piece, The Arrow Maker, is very much about Native American roots and traditions, and that shows a sort of father teaching his daughter how to make an arrow. So these are the kinds of things that she was working into her work throughout her life. She also made plenty of busts of famous American individuals, presidents, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and he actually commissioned her to make that portrait of him. Mm. So I guess that's kind of like testament to her mm. fame at the time. Definitely. Another one of her really important works as well was sort of drawn on the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow story of the Song of Hiawatha. Have you ever heard of that? No. Oh, the reason I've heard of that is because that's the story of an Ojibwe man mm-hmm. and a Dakota woman. Her name's Minnehaha. And for some odd reason, all my life, I've known about Minnehaha. Right. And I think it's just because I heard I heard the name somewhere and I was like, that's a fucking great name. Mm. And it's just stuck with me for the rest of my life. So right. I'm like, everybody knows about Minnehaha, right? Yeah. Um, but apparently they don't. Nope. <laughs> so, But this was another story that really affected her. And it affected her because, of course, it was connected to her Native American yeah. roots. And so there's also her work that's inspired by this story too so yeah as i said that new artistic movement was sort of taking hold in paris so that Mm. that art center was still kind of moving over there yeah Yeah. but those women of that expatriate community of sort of the 1870s and 1880s really were amazing like the personal freedoms that they found the artistic freedoms that they found during that period in Rome, when Rome was the center mm-hmm. of center of art, center of art, it was all happening then. But now it's sort of shifting to those French schools, the ateliers that we yeah. talked about. Because it's Agnes. really different. The different styles of art as well. It's not like art just moved to Paris. We've no. got very different styles. So you know, like you said, these are primarily a lot of sculptors and things. And then rising in Paris, there's a lot more. Of visual arts, yeah. impressionism, moving into modernism. And then, of course, there's a whole literary scene in Paris Rising as well. Rising at the same time. Whereas that's not, I don't think, quite as much of a thing in Rome. Although, of course, in the early 1800s in Italy, there was quite a bit of a literary scene. But that's an English expat literary scene, not an American. Anyway. Unless you're Nathaniel Hawthorne and you want to like just steal some ideas from <laughs> lesbian lovers, but then not actually say anywhere in your story that they're lesbians. <laughs> just make them completely heterosexual instead because you're Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> but yeah, and that kind of brings us to the end of Edmonia's story, but that doesn't bring us to the end of uh, you at home looking her up. No, go and have a look at her sculptures, especially... Cleopatra it is really cool it is quite an impressive piece of work and you know there's probably more there might be more about her life that somebody else might be able to dig up for me somebody else might be able to fill in those last 10 or so years of her life yeah yeah if definitely if if it's out there I struggled to find it hopefully someone does I'm sure people do somebody (laughs) somewhere must know (laughs) but yeah so that brings us to the end of another adventure I think that may well bring us to the end of looking at this particular period of history. For this season. For this season. <laughs> we will no doubt be back here again. No doubt. No doubt. Next season. But I for reckon. the very present moment we're done with the 19th century. For the very present moment, 19th century, you are done. <laughs> Put a big tick next to it, everybody. Yeah. 
You've learned so much about the 19th century this year. <laughs> so much. We've done a lot. We've covered a lot of women from the 19th century. We sure have. I think that's because that's when they started, really extraordinary women started to be recorded more Yeah, often. definitely. They started to crop up in the mm. records. And they're the kind of women that it's easier to find information about yeah. because of that. Yeah. It doesn't mean extraordinary women didn't exist in a whole bunch of other times and places. Mm. But that's also our job, to uncover those ones as well. Yeah, hope we're so, working on it. Hey. Working on it. Yeah. So um, do you have any ideas for where we might be uncovering women next time? I think we it might be another homegrown story. Maybe. Okay. Good. Another Australian woman. Mm-hmm. I think we might dip our toes into the occult. Oh, yay. So. We haven't really done that since the very beginning, since have we? way back in the beginning. Way back. Way, oh, way great. back. Let's go back to the occult. So. Can't wait. We can wait. begin and end with the occult. Well, it's not quite the end. We're getting, the, uh, we're getting close. Penultimate-ish. Occult. Occult. Not quite bookends because there's one book. There's one book still to come. There is. There's one book that just has to stand up on its own. Yeah. Leaning against the book. Leaning against. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) This analogy is getting out of control. (laughs) So let's just wrap up by saying. Thanks very much for joining us once again. And if you like the podcast, there are a bunch of ways that you can support us. First of all, you can find us on Twitter. We are at DeviantWomen. We are also on Facebook, if you want to like the page. Oh, yeah, women. Facebook. I always yeah, forget that we're on Facebook. Do they? So, yeah, Some I guess people? people do. Surprise us and go I on always Facebook. forget about it. And then on episode release day, I'm like, I better post it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, surprise us out there. <laughs> Get on Facebook. So, of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. And if you do listen to us on any of those mediums, please leave us a review. We love reviews. Or subscribe so that you can get the episodes straight to your podcatching app as soon as they come out. Oh, you'll get a little notification and everything. It'll yeah. go ding. <laughs> uh, you can email us at deviantwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Get in contact. Tell um, us how your day's been. No, don't. <laughs> we could. I mean, our inbox isn't that flooded. <laughs> yeah, I know. But mate, I don't want to set that might precedent be an invitation up. you want to rescind later. Yeah, okay. You can also, of course, show your support for us on Patreon. Please do. <laughs> We've got loads of Patreon-only content well, coming your way. <laughs> yeah, a lo- yeah, a lot planned. It comes in monthly in- installments, you know. So um, we've got some more Patreon-only content coming up in the next couple of weeks for That's our Patreons who are already on board. And that can include you if you so wish. It could. So why don't you also get on board? <laughs> or if you just want a T-shirt or a pin, you can jump onto Etsy and you can collect some awesome merch. You can just simply purchase it and I'll and pop it, it in the body. post. I'll give it to a post person. And you can wear it. I'll take it to you. On your person. And that's it from us. That's it from us for another exciting romp. So we'll be back with you in another fortnight. Just two weeks' time. It's two weeks' time. And so we look forward to we'll seeing see you, you all then. Bye.